Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy podcast. My name is Michael and I'm here today with guest co-host Al. Al, say hello to everyone. Hi everybody, this is uh, Alan, Big Al Nicholas. I'm here again for your pleasure. Or maybe mine, I don't know. <laughs> Everyone's pleasure, right? There we go. You're an equal opportunity. Oh, that's probably should go. <laughs> anyway, we're here today for another episode of The Reviews. This time, we're going to be taking a look at the Fallout RPG by Modifius, uh, which we recently did the review for their Dune Imperium book. And we were sent a, an electronic copy for review, but that doesn't matter because Al said, no, I need the big boy box. <sighs> and tell me about this Gek. Special edition box you got? All right. So uh, whenever uh, whenever Modifius announced the Fallout uh, role-playing game, I just had to go all in, which is um, pretty rare. But I, I'm a big – I don't know that I'm a big Fallout fan because I'm not a Fallout fan from the very beginning. But I really, really enjoy um, Fallout. So I just said, I'm going to go all in. So you've got this um, Gek special edition box set. I think it, I think they're all sold out at this point in time. Maybe they'll do another printing at some point, but at this point, I think you can't get it. GEC stands for Garden of Eden Creation Kit. It's an in-game item. Uh, basically, it's just a fancy um, like machine core type deal that will automatically make a small portion of the land totally free of radiation and ready to go. So, you know, a Garden of Eden. <laughs> mm. Um, but with regards to what you get in the Gek Special Edition box, I mean, first of all, you get a nice box, right? That's in the, the box set. And then you get a Game Master Toolkit, um, which is a, a, a few things. Two sets of really uh, very nice um, heavy paper. I don't even know that it's actually paper. It's kind of that, that paper that almost feels like it's uh, – I think it is paper, but it almost feels like it's plastic, you know, that really heavy stuff. Mm-hmm. So you get two sets of um, some handy cheat sheets there. You got basic rules and um, and combat, and so that's really cool because you have what you need for an for a game that's in person. You don't have what you need for an online game, but you have what you need for an in person game. Makes it really easy. You have this fantastic map of uh, the Commonwealth and downtown Boston, and it's just plain gorgeous. I mean, it really is. Um, and then you have a Game Master's booklet, uh, which contains um, a large number of tables to add to the already large number of tables that are within this game, the uh, Fallout RPG. And then you get some more fun things. You get a character sheet pad. Everybody, you know, you like those. You can just write out your characters. Yep. Always a good thing. Always a good thing. You get um, some tokens, which are just those those uh, they're Nuka Cola cap tokens, but these are just the um, cardboard punch out tokens, and, and okay. that's those are nice, right? Um, but what's really nice is you actually get Nuka Cola caps, like actual metal <laughs> caps, yeah. as though they came off of Nuka Cola. So for the younger folks in the audience. In the way back, when I was a kid, when you went to the store to buy a Coke or a Pepsi or whatever, it came in a glass bottle, and it had basically like ten I don't I don't know what metal it's made out of cap on it, and you had to like pry it off with a can opener or a bottle opener. I guess I guess beer still does that. I guess it's not too weird if someone's. I guess the drinkers in the audience might already know that. But in the video game, because I've I've played one of them a little bit. I'm by no means a huge Fallout fan in regards to video games. 
But that's basically like money, right? You find the caps everywhere and it's basically money that you can use to spend to buy things in game. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And and I don't know that there's any real good use for these, but it's really cool to have them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you're talking about the caps. If you, uh, I don't know if it's available where you're at, but um, where I'm at, if I go to uh, to like Sam's Club and I want um, soft drinks, I can go to the back and they'll have Mexican Coke, like Coke that's yeah, it has actual Mexico. sugar in it. Yeah, yes, that exactly with the actual sugar, not that corn sweetener, corn syrup stuff. And those will still have your caps on them too, your Coca Cola caps. So pretty cool. I've had one of those, but it was it was years ago because I don't drink any soda at all anymore. Um, I used to like drink. Coke, Coke and Pepsi like a fiend. Like it's my kidneys. Are, that's probably why I have kidney stones all the time. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, making, I'm not a doctor. Don't take any advice from me. But I drink way too much soda. Anyway. Yeah. The last thing you have in that kit is a uh, set of custom dice. So this is also based off of Modifius's 2D20 system. It's similar to Dune, correct? Correct. So I know we're going to talk about Crunch kind of later, but it's high level. How does that work? If I'm playing the Fallout RPG and I want to like jump a pit or scavenge something in a, an abandoned house. What am I doing? I'm rolling 2d20s, take the better one, the worst one. Like how, how does that just briefly, how does the mechanics work of the game? Um, all right. So briefly the 2d20 system is, um, is a roll under system. Whenever you're trying to do something, you'll take um, a skill and another, I can't remember what the second one's called, uh, but there's two numbers that, that are there. You add them together and you're trying to get below that number. So let's say you have a, a five on a skill and something else and, and you end up with a 13. Uh, well, you got to roll below a 13 to succeed. And, and when you start out, of course, you're really like trying to roll belows like, you know, eights and nines and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, but you're trying to roll below. And if you roll below, then you succeed for all intents and purposes. And there's there's more wrinkles to that because there's mechanisms where you can um, use other die and 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 uh, there's things that you can do. Let's put it to like, you that way. Like modify those numbers yes. or yeah. You know, isn't that how Star Trek Adventure works too? It is. I think if you, yeah. so because like you have like focuses and stuff that like lowers the number as well. And at least in that game, exactly. I've only played it a couple of times, so I might be mistaken. All right, so my other question for you is, so you, I think we touched on briefly, this is based off of the Fallout video game series. And how, which, which Fallout game did you start with? Like, which one is your first, maybe only, our, uh, Fallout or video game? So what's really cool about this particular game uh, coming out of Modiphius is that it's based on, for all, uh, if you're talking about the Fallout world, it's based on Fallout 4, which is actually the first Fallout that I played. It's not necessarily the only one, but it's the first one that I that I really spent a significant amount of time on, and then later kind of started playing with some of the other ones. But Fallout Four is also the first one that I think was on a um, a more advanced gaming system. Um, and then, of course, after Fallout Four, there's Fallout seventy six, which is trash. But we're not going to talk about that. Okay. But we're going to no, talk about no, the no, fact no. that <laughs> we're talking about the fact that this Fallout RPG game is based, at least in terms of setting, on the Fallout Four game. So there's a lot of overlap, and so things become things are much more familiar than you necessarily anticipate going in, and that makes it really cool for me. 
because I was able to actually follow things better than, say, I did in the Dune system. Hmm. So we're going to get into kind of the review portion here. So just keep in mind, dear audience, that if you are listening, that we are going to be talking sort of interchangeably about the game itself, as well as the, all the extra components that Al got from the, the Gek box set. So some of the things that we, we talk about might be exclusive to that, but we will try to make it make sense if, we, if it gets into the nitty gritty. But for the most part, you can assume this is about the book. Some of the extra doodads might raise or adjust scores, but those would be extra. So the first thing we like to talk about is the art and the layout. So here we're talking about the number of art, the number of pieces of art that are in the book, how evocative are they? Do they just match sort of the, the feel of the Fallout world that you are wanting from your experience with the, with the video games or what the book is presenting? And then the layout is basically how the information is presented to us. Do the chapters break, make sense? Do the headings make sense? Are there sidebars as appropriate? Uh, you know, indexes, really anything and everything that you can put together. Uh, so let's just start. Tell us what your rating is, and then we'll justify why you gave it that rating. All right. So my art and layout rating is an A. That would and be before, good for those yeah, listening. Good. A's are good. Yeah, yes. I, I, rated, I rated this really high for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think when you're talking about art and layout, you're talking about two different things, right? You're talking about the art and you're talking about the layout, and those two things – uh, overlap a little bit, but they're also separate. And what I mean basically is that your layout's not just where the picture is, it's um, how the actual pages are organized. Um, whether you have big letters or small letters, whether you have the D&D microscopically, you know, we're going to put as many possible words as we can on one page and you're going to have to put on your glasses to read it. Or if it's something that's uh, closer to the alien RPG where you have a lot of space between, um, where you have language and stuff like that. And then even beyond that, the layout goes into how you actually structure the contents of your book, um, you know, your chapters and everything else. Uh, and then, you know, just a little bit of incidentals that go along with this. So with regard to the layout, first of all, it's very intuitive. Um, there's nothing that really is confusing about the structure of the book from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. The uh, It doesn't have the same number of interruptions that Dune had. Dune had a lot of interruptions. And, and what I mean by interruptions are little pop-out sections where you would, would read about something that's related to, but a little bit dissimilar to what's in the majority of the of that particular page. And the reason for that is that there's a whole lot more actual information in this book than the Dune book. And that's a, that's a nat that's, that goes back to the nature of the game itself. Um, Fallout is the type of game where you are collecting things, you are building things. Uh, it is very crunchy in a way that Dune is not. So Dune is more intellectual in a way that Fallout Kind of is not, although Fallout gets really intellectual too. But uh, so you don't have as many of those interruptions, but it makes up for it in a whole lot of other ways, particularly in a color co color coordination scheme that they've got going on, um, where you've got you've got four colors that show up in the book, and when you turn to any 
page in the book and you look on the top scrolling little bar of the no, – it's not a scrolling bar because it's a book. Wow. We're so used to internet. <laughs> the heading of those pages uh, is broken down into what uh, are the different chapters and then one chapter, whatever chapter that is, is highlighted and it's a particular color and that color goes back down to all the little – banners that go across the page and stuff like that. Well, this is really cool because when you're looking at this book, you've got kind of your introductory stuff, right? Your core rules, your core combat rules, your just introductory stuff is orange. And so if you turn, uh, if you open your book and you're looking, obviously it's got to be toward the beginning of the book, but you, you open your book, you look and you see orange with regard to the banners and to, I mean, you just know that this is one of the very simple. Let's get this. Let's get you the core information. And then from there, you have character creation and equipment and survival. And this is kind of uh, the crunch. And it is yellow. And again, if you turn in your book and you look and you see a banner and it's yellow, then you know it's in this particular section of three chapters. Um, then you get into uh, the lore type stuff, the fluff. Um, there's three chapters of it. And it basically talking about corporations that exist in pre-war America and Vault-Tec, which is Vault-Tec, excuse me, Vault-Tec, which is how you kind of survive sometimes. And then the actual Commonwealth, which is where you're at. But these are all under a blue uh, coloring. So again, open your book. You're on a random page. Here's a blue banner. I know that this is my fluff. So I know what my introductory rules are in terms of color. I know what my crunch is in terms of color. I know what my fluff is in terms of color. And I know what my game mastering stuff is in terms of color. Because the stuff that's more aimed at game mastering, uh, types of NPCs and animals and insects and all that kind of stuff, um, including the um, built-in adventure, which which is really good, those are all green. So at any point in time, if I open my book, and I look down, I can kind of figure out where I'm at. Um, and I, and I, and it's just, it's a nice way of breaking it down beyond just having your, you know, headings and chapters and everything else. So, you know, the layout's just fantastic for that, for those reasons. I can say just flipping through it myself, because I, I have a copy for the Catacomb library. Uh, so I do have a physical copy as well. And again, not just from the aspect of what you're saying, like, you know, understanding where each section is just flipping through the book. It's visually interesting that you have a section that's kind of yellow. There's a section that's kind of orange, a section that's kind of blue, and it does kind of keep it from feeling monotonous. and feel like it's this huge, you know, mammoth tome you have to read through. It is like in my mind is like, Oh, this is a sectional thing. I can read a section and it just makes it feel like I could in, you know, in, uh, grok this a little bit in smaller steps and not feel so intimidated by it. Like I have to read this whole thing to learn how the game works. It, I also think it really helps because it is based on a video game. It's got years and years and years of assets, you know, like I'm just living through here. I can see there's some lovely art, but there's also some things that looks basically like straight out of the video game, like, you know, like a workbench, which is probably something you would see in the video game. And obviously they have those little like, the little dude, I don't know what his name is. Yes. Yeah, there's like these little assets, like the weapons. And I'm guessing a lot of the math of like this weapon is plus this and this weapon does that is probably, I, I don't know, but I'm guessing it's probably from the video game, which I guess, I guess I'm getting into crunch now. So yeah, it's like art layout. Looks cool. I, I really, really agree. I like that. And just flipping through, I can see that every chapter has a two page 
like splash page, like a comic book kind of thing. And there's quite a lot of art through, though it does look like some of it is just assets from the game. Not that that's bad, but it's like it's not like it's all brand new art. And even the art in here may be from the games. I'm just not familiar with them. And that's and that's completely accurate. I think the art. The reason I spent so much time talking about the layout is because the art is pretty much just Fallout art. I mean, if you've played the games, you've seen pretty much what you're looking at from from here and okay. there and stuff. And there's some really nice pieces that are, you know, probably a little bit different than what you see in the game. But at the end of the day, they're still just Fallout art. So it's cool, but nothing really exceptional artistic-wise. Now, what is probably a little cooler is that you can go in and if you look at, say, the monsters or the NPCs, um, see if I can find examples, but uh, everything that you have usually has a picture associated with it. So if I'm looking at a super mutant, there's a picture of a super mutant. If I'm looking at a super mutant behemoth, there it is. Um, if I'm looking at like a bot fly, there's a picture of a bot fly. Um, a bloat fly, excuse me, not a bot fly. A bloat fly. Um, mire lurks. You got pictures of mire lurks. You have pictures of different types of mire lurks whenever you're going through this. Um, it's really cool to be able to see exactly what it is that you're describing. And that goes back to what you're talking about, which is assets from the game. But these are the art version of those assets, which is kind of cool because you get to see it differently than you would if you're in the game and it's actually moving towards you and stuff like that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to touch about for two seconds, because you said it and I agree in terms of the sectional aspect or the sectional feeling of this book and, and making you feel like, Oh, this is a section and I can go through this in sections. You'll notice that even the paragraphs, rather than have a paragraph um, have that indention that you have whenever you're writing classically, they're separated by an extra space. This is not quite double spacing whenever you're within the paragraph. It's probably a space and a half, maybe space and a quarter, or space and third. Uh, it's not quite double spacing, but there is an extra space between every single paragraph, which really helps you not get lost. Please, if you're Wizards of the Coast, and you're listening to this, which you're not, but if you are, please do some stuff like this. Just break up your book a little bit because it's so much easier to get through it from a layout perspective if it's just broken up a little bit. So, and we'll, I'll just jump in here. So this book is a hefty 432 pages, it looks like, 31, 32 pages. And part of that length is because everything's just a little bit further spread out. Like they probably could have got this to a 300 page book if they were to do a more condensed uh, font and layout. But I think you're right. I mean, it's a gorgeous book. I'm just gonna say again, it's just the color scheme, the the font on it. It's again, it's, it's, this is all from the video game, but it's gorgeous. It's, you know, if you like the video games, you're going to love it. But I do agree. I think that extra space that they give you, uh, is helpful, but it also makes the book a lot bigger. And again, no shade on Wizards of the Coast, but their you know their their budgets and their how much the book costs and everything is they're probably not going to change that. No, they're not. They're not. But you know, but, you I, know, gotta, I got to at least throw it out there. You know, it'd I mean, be nice. you know, <laughs> it is a fair critique critique of them, so I, I don't mind it. All right, I think that pretty much covers the art and layout. 
Well, you do want to mention that there is a map in the Gek box that is not in the book. Correct. Uh, and But I do see, and I don't know if it's called out, there's a ribbon, which I, I love ribbons in RPG books. Those are always cool. So even in just the, the plain hardback, the, the one that you would get normally retail, there's an included uh, ribbon bookmark, which I just am a fan of. Every time I have any book with one of those, so I like to point it out. So you've got just the, uh, you've got just the standard book, correct? Yeah. And it only has one ribbon? Correct. Because the Gek book has two. <laughs> oh. We're in a ribbon measuring That's contest right. now, That's and right. you're winning. All right. <laughs> nice. All right. So Arden Layout, big fan, and not just because of the extra special stuff in the Gek. The poster map is, is really cool looking. You said it's just very evocative, really well done. But even without that, is this still an A if you just have the book, you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, well, you know, maybe a B plus, maybe, maybe, maybe we can maybe go down a, a partial, um, but I think it probably still makes it, well, A minus. Yeah. A, A minus. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the next up we have the fluff and the fluff is basically the story of the setting of the world of the game that you're playing in. Now, again, this is basically the fallout game, video game as an RPG. So we've got hundreds of hours of, you know, lore that we can pull from, you are, a, you know, an admitted fan of the fourth game, not so much the 76 one, but the fourth one you're a big fan of. So how do you, how well do you think this translates to the world of an RPG? What is your rating for this game's fluff? So when I was writing the review, I, I said it was an A+, and I think I'm going to stick it, I'm going to stay there. But I'm going to okay. say that it's definitely, to some degree, it's going to be a your mileage may vary type situation. Okay. Um, because it's really going to depend a lot on, on whether you like the concept of Fallout. Um, and if you don't like the concept of Fallout, then it may, the fluff may kind of fall a little bit short for you. It may not. It may be, it may, you may still think it's fantastic. But, um, so the reason I like the fluff as much as I like the fluff is that there is a shit ton of it. <laughs> I mean, there really is. There's almost a hundred pages that's devoted specifically to fluff. And you may think, well, that's not that much in a 300, 400, a 400 page book, but it really is because when you're talking about crunch, which we'll get to in a little bit, a lot of that is literally tables. I mean, there's probably 150 pages of tables. No, there's probably more than that. I mean, there's a lot of tables. Um, so when you're talking about fluff being not tables and it's about a hundred pages, that's a lot of fluff. What's cool about the fluff is that it comes, it, it tackles things in different ways. And first of all, it's a ton, but also tackles things in different ways. So chapter six is Corporations of Pre-War America. And it's going to be a chapter that focuses on Corporations of Pre-War America, which is everything that so, came below, came before. So, so should we just take a quick second? And again, I'm probably unnecessary, but just in case someone is listening to this and they are not familiar with Fallout at all. The basis of the video game, the basis of this role-playing game, is that there was a nuclear war. And it destroyed most of, I'm pretty sure, the world. And Fallout has to do with, like, the nuclear fallout of that. And in the video game, you play survivors who hid underground in vaults that were built to protect from nuclear fallout. And now, you know, people have started to come, kind of come back to the surface in this post-apocalyptic world. And again, that's why you have mutant animals and mutant people, and you're kind of scavenging, trying to find food and resources and that kind of thing. So the fluff is about, so what you started with, that's the stuff that's all happened before the war that caused the fallout that is 
our girl what this world is about. So my apologies if that didn't need to be said, but just in case. No, I think it did need to be said. I mean, that's the problem with me as a fan is I'm like, I'm so pumped about it that I'm like, hey, I, I'm not even going to tell you what this is actually about. I'm just going to tell you how awesome it is. <laughs> uh, but no, I, you're, you are correct to go ahead and give that overview of what Fallout is. And then from that, we'll segue into the fluff. <laughs> Um, so like you said, the corporations of pre-war America, that would be what happens before the war. Um, and you get – so the way they've designed this and the way they've presented the fluff is in such a way that it's designed to give you hooks. Like it's really – you're supposed to get hooks out of it. And there are so many hooks. There are so many things that are just within the fluff. The corporations of pre-war America provides you with some – and then you just kind of go from there. But if you're looking at the corporations of pre-war America, what you're looking at is maybe the bigger hooks. So, for instance, uh, you might have a hook where you've got a tech corporation that was working on some really high-level stuff. Uh, and you can kind of insert that into your story and you can build on it for a lot, you know, uh, several sessions and then you can get to a solution. But where you started from was you were sitting here reading chapter six and you read about it and you're like, hey, this is cool. I want to incorporate this. That's that's what's there. Um, chapter seven is all about the vault tech uh, people and vault tech is the vaults that were created in the fallout world to protect against this kind of nuclear war. So before the nuclear war, Vault Tech said, hey, you know, we have a lot of nuclear stuff, so um, maybe you guys should protect yourselves in case there's ever a nuclear war. We're going to create these really cool vaults, and we're going to create so many vaults that everybody will be safe. Well, obviously that didn't happen. Um, and then it turns out that Vault Tech is kind of a bad actor. Because <laughs> most of these vaults – If you can't trust a giant mega corporation, who can you trust? Exactly. Because most of these vaults have some other agenda. They're not just keeping you safe. They're talking about this. They're talking about that. Uh, they're experiments. They're experimenting with you socially. They're experimenting with you biologically. Um, and similar to the corporation section, the vault tech section gives you a whole bunch of different vaults that you can consider putting into your game. Um, and different um, hooks that can come out of that. Uh, it gives you places that you can start if you want to, depending on um, how you feel about focusing about vaults or having a, a game that's focused about survivors that came out of vaults, which you don't have to. Um, this game is designed in such a way that you don't have to play a vault dweller uh, which is cool because when you play the games, that's all you can play is a vault dweller. Excuse me. When you play the video game, that's all you can play is a vault dweller, but not so, not so in the RPG In the RPG, you can play a super mutant if you want to. Um, so that's cool. I may have lied about super mutant. I have to go back and look, but the point is that you can play all these <laughs> other creatures, uh, all these other uh, characters, including, I know you can play a robot. No, those are cool. Um, Mr. Handies and stuff, but, Anyway, so you got the Vault Tech uh, section, then you've got the Commonwealth section. Now, the Commonwealth section goes into key locations and key events that are within the big map that you have, the fancy big map that you have in the GEC materials. But they're key locations um, and events that happen in the place where you're going to be playing with regards to how this particular RPG is set up, this particular setting. Commonwealth uh, is in New England, it's around Boston. You have um, 
Boston as actually a locale and the harbor and all that other stuff. So again, just like everything I've said before, based about hooks, you have all these hooks that are written into this fluff and, and it's, it's like, I have a hard time even giving you examples because there are so many that it kind of floods my brain when I'm trying to consider them individually to tell you what to do because Hey, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But the point is that you have all these ideas that are just, ripe for the picking, ripe for the mining, you're good to go. Just jump in. Um, after you read these three sec- these three chapters, this almost 100 pages of, of fluff, you have so much to work with that you don't even need. You don't even, you don't even, I mean, you don't even need to, to do your own thing. You can just totally do that. Or you can do your own thing and you can take, uh, you can take some inspiration from those things. Uh, it's, it's really cool. It really is. All right. So again, if someone's already a fan of the the Fallout game, is is this a lot from the video games, or is it just sort of like inspired by the video games? No, it's all straight out. <laughs> okay. Maybe not straight out, straight out, but it's it is right there. It's right out of uh, right out of Fallout Four. So, which is cool. All right. Okay. Very cool. All right. And then the next section, and basically it's it's sort of the last, but then we do an overall as well. And this is the crunch. And the crunch is basically the rules of the game. And in this case, it also it includes both the Modifius's 2D20 system, which we very briefly talked about at the beginning, but then with the addition of the Fallout sort of world on top of it, the individual uh, characters that you can play, the weapons and armor and stuff that you can find, again, based off the video game, the way that you would fight the creatures, how they're presented, what they can do, that kind of thing. So it's it's a very big sort of section, as uh, as all of these are, but we try to find a way to kind of give them a, a rating so we can express our, you know, happiness or, or, you know, how much we would recommend. So what is your rating for Crunch for the Fallout RPG book? All right, I've got uh, Crunch. I'm I'm going to give this this Fallout RPG book a B plus. I think that it is a significant um, jump forwards from the Dune book, and I'll kind of go okay. into it. Uh, but before we go into it too much, let's talk a little bit about what it is um, in terms of the overall. We already touched on it, but um, let's go ahead and I'll I'll kind of explain just a little bit better the two D twenty system. Lay it on me, brother. So what you're doing is you, as we said, we're trying to we're trying to roll below numbers, is what it boils down to. And what you're looking at is a default attribute in a skill. So if you're trying to sneak, your default attribute would be something that's similar to dexterity. I'm not sure that's called dexterity in this game because I don't have that in front of me right now. But the point is that you'd be using that plus your sneak, and that number you're trying to get below. Okay, you will almost always, you'll start out with two D20s. So you're getting two opportunities to succeed. And that's just kind of a basic success. But depending on what you roll, you can have like greater successes. So for instance, if you roll a one, then you're going to get two successes out of that as opposed to one success because it's cool like that. Uh, but what you're going to be looking at is the smaller of the two numbers that, that are added together. If you can get below them, then you can get additional successes and you can, you can kind of, those create action points and you can hold those action points and you can spend those action points. And that basically is all about um, figuring out ways to make your role uh, more likely to be successful, whether that's purchasing more D20s up to five or whether that's, um, 
creating um, other opportunities in some other way. That's that's what you're doing with those action points. You can sometimes use them to do extra damage, um, and that's that's your basic. That is your basic two d twenty system. Let me uh, just to clarify. So I can buy additional d twenties. So let's say I buy five of them. Only one of them has to be below the target number I'm trying to get to to have a success. But certain challenges may require multiple successes. Correct. So then I have up to five successes if I've rolled five dice. And if any of them roll ones, each one of those ones counts as two successes. So you could potentially get ten successes on five dice if you rolled five ones. That's right. Are there – like what's like the most – if they, if you know, like, what's the highest? If like, do I you do you need six ever, or is it like three is like the most ever you'd ever have to get? So the book anticipates, or the system anticipates, difficulty levels up to five. Um, okay, with five being, I guess, you know, something that would be really difficult to accomplish. Next to superhuman, I suppose the way that you can describe it. Okay. Um, the other aspect that I didn't touch about is that if you roll a twenty, which is good in some games, it's bad in this game. It creates a complication. Complications do not prevent you from succeeding, but they do introduce something that makes the scene more difficult or that makes your game more difficult as a result of. So the 20 itself doesn't mean you fail, but obviously it's not a success. So you could fail because you don't have successes. Right, right, right. Trying to give a good example. Say you were trying to sneak and you only used two die on it and you had to get below a 15 and you rolled a 12 and you rolled a 20. Well, you succeeded. You snuck by this um, guard or whatever. So you got by him, but maybe your complication is that even though he didn't see you, he heard something. And so now he's on higher alert. And so your friend who hasn't snuck by him yet is going to have to roll and get three successes instead of just one. Or something mm-hmm. to that effect. So the difficulty. So again, because I think I'm still fearing this. I played the Star Trek like once, and I, I didn't do it very well. So the difficulty adjustment isn't the number that you need to get under. That's just based off of your individual stats. Right. It is how many successes that you need. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Which that is makes sense. Why you would end up buying, you know, buying extra D20, dice. buying extra dice. So that that's that kind of sums up the basics of it. Now, okay. what I like about this system that's different from Dune is that one of the one of the core one of the the nuances or the wrinkles, I guess we we'll call them wrinkles. So your Modifius systems start out with this basic D two these this basic two D twenty system, and then they they introduce wrinkles based upon what type of game you're playing and how they've designed that game. And so one of the wrinkles in Dune is basically a mechanism by which you can insert assets into scenes. Um, but the problem that I have with that is that it's so, it's so ill-defined or undefined. It's so undefined that if you can justify the asset and your game master is cool with your justification, you can break the system so easily. Hmm. Or break the game, rather. The system's intact, but suddenly you're a badass because you brought the nukes because you knew that you were going to need them because you studied under so-and-so and so-and-so. And, oh, yeah, okay, well, that all makes sense, so I'm going to let you do that. Well, then now suddenly you're an enormous badass. The Fallout RPG doesn't do that. 
doesn't create the same okay. way. Um, the assets in terms of your guns, your everything else is is much more um, concrete because you do have okay, uh, you you do have a gun of some sort, and then you can modify it and do other things. You can purchase other guns. You can purchase ammo. You can uh, do modifications with your armor and stuff. But these are these are concrete things as opposed to the idea of an asset that you just happen to have because you are prepared or that you don't have because you are not prepared. Um, now, the negative about that is that you're now creating an inventory that you have to keep track of. Um, and inventory is a big part of Fallout. It's a big part of the video games. It's a big part of the RPG. It's less of a big part of the RPG than it is in the video games, but it's still a big part of it, which means that some of what you're doing is scavenging, um, where you would go into a, a room and you would ask, um, you would tell the, your game master that you're scavenging and you roll a, a dice and there's a table. And depending on what you rolled, you get these items. Now, what I don't like about the system and the reason that it's not an A or an A minus is the scavenging. Because if you want to modify one of your guns, you're looking at the modifications and they're going to say that you need this perk. Perks are completely a separate deal, but basically perks are part of your, um, a, a part of your leveling up. And and when you get, I remember that from the video game. It's kind of, it's kind of like feats, if you think about D and D terms. This perk makes me better at shooting. That perk may make you healthier or more hardy. This perk may let you scavenge better. So they're just like little modifications to your character that you choose at certain times as you level from the video game. Exactly. And when you're modifying your weapons, you have to have perks that that coincide with, um, like being an armorer was is, armory. If you wanted to modify your armor, you'd need to have some kind of armory perk usually. So that's fine. But then when they talk about what you need in terms of items, what they say is you need X number of common items or X number of uncommon or X number of rare. And so what they're not telling you is what you actually need. And so it creates a weird situation where you could scavenge somewhere where there's no way that you would, there's no way in this area that you're scavenging that you would get what you need to put barbed wire on your your armor mm-hmm. but you still get the items the uncommon item or the rare item so that the next time that you want to modify your armor you can just do it so it's like all right i'm modifying my gun with wood <laughs> right and, then, and i mean i think that's things that if you work with the dm and the player you could probably find a way to make that work narratively, but it takes a little extra step. It's probably easier to hand wave it that way. Yeah. I mean, you could always say that you already had the thing that you needed, but you needed this perfectly sized sliver of wood to make it work because you didn't have the right screw you need. So like you've already had the barbed wire, you've had it barbed wire, you've had it forever, but you didn't have this thing that lets you glue it together. You know, yeah. So I, I get what you're saying, but I think that's an easy one to get past if you just work with your game master and, you know, try to make it make more sense. Yeah. And I agree. It's not, it doesn't break it by any means, but it's just the one thing that I think it's interesting because it's the one thing that is undefined. It's the one thing. Like loosey goosey. Yeah. Everything else is like solid and, and precise. And here's this one, like, this one thing. I don't know. What do you think section? Yeah. And, and realistically, I understand completely why they did it because if you're talking about the different pieces of <laughs> things that can be scavenged, 
I mean, you'd probably have to add another <laughs> 50 pages to the book or something right. to that effect, uh, between your, your tables and explaining. And, and it would, it would make it, it would make it too cumbersome to really be an enjoyable system. So when you simplify it, it does make it an enjoyable system. So kind of like encumbrance in D and D type of thing. Like, you know, if, if you like tracking that stuff or how many torches you have, sure. But a lot of us, just sort of hand wave it because that's not fun. So you have a crafting element where you're like, okay, I got to scavenge. I need two more rare parts and I get this cool armor, but I don't have to go, well, technically what I need could only be found in a submarine. So I guess I'll never find that. Exactly. Unless it's just, I need two rare things and I happen to be in a Lego factory. And for some reason, here's this thing I needed. So I, I get it. I get it from a fun standpoint, but it does break the verisimilitude, my new favorite word, a little bit. Well, and what's interesting, like we were talking about this and how you run your game may be different from how I run mine and so on and so forth. Um, when you get to the game mastering section of this book, in the first paragraph, I mean, there it's, it is literally, uh, the book is literally telling you um, that it is your game. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the actual sentence is this. Always remember that the rules presented in this book are intended as guidance rather than hard and fast rules that must be followed. And it is always your decision as the game master to bend, break, or even abandon certain rules depending on the situation. I think that's the coolest thing ever. Like just to throw it out there <laughs> immediately and say, hey, guess what? You're running the game, but it's your game. Do it how you want to. Right. The rules are there are no rules. First man dead loses. That's right. And if you're having fun. You're doing it right. There you go. Hey, catchy. I like that. <laughs> All right. So the crunch part, again, I mean, a B plus is still a very good rating, but it is the lowest of the, the three that we've taken a look at. So with all of that kind of combined together, sounds to me like this is still going to be a, a very good overall rating, but where did you actually come in at? Solid A. Yeah. Solid A, a. overall. Yeah. I'm pretty happy with that. This is... um I don't know if it's my favorite RPG book that I've read, but it's definitely top five, probably top three. It's just a, it's a fun book and it gives you so much, gives you so much to work with, man. I mean, it is, it is a lot of information, but it's not presented in a way that overpowers you. And I really hmm. appreciate that. So I guess the only question I would have, because I have not read this book uh, in depth at all is when I've played the game, it's pretty much, at least the version of Fallout I have played, is a single-player experience. It's a role-playing game, so you have NPCs you interact with, but it's, it's a lot of walking through the wasteland by yourself, finding stuff. So how does that mesh with the group aspect of putting together a party of adventurers and going out together? I mean, I know you kind of would have to. I mean, I guess you could play it solo, but, but is that just something you have to be like, well, this is how it works in a role-playing game, or do they do anything to kind of help get us over that mental hump of, but that's not the experience I've had in the video game. So I think probably the biggest thing they do in terms of trying to get you over that mental hump um, is very early on when you're talking about character creation and you get into um, what your background is. Um, See here, I'm going to go to it so I can actually talk about it. Choosing your origin 51. I mean, this is really probably where you you get what you need in terms of mentally. And basically, if you're playing Fallout 4, if you're playing any Fallout game, uh, I believe, you're a survivor from a vault, which means that you've been probably uh, experimented on in some way and that there's, you know, there's some kind of underlying long um, 
thread of story that you're following from beginning to end. But you're always starting from a vault. So you're always starting from a vault. The book is really clear that that's not where you're all, you're always starting from. Um, you may start with from the Brotherhood uh, of Iron. You may be a Brotherhood initiate. Uh, you may be a ghoul. You may be a super mutant. Um, you may be a Mr. Handy, which is a robot. Uh, you may be a survivor and you may be a vault dweller. And only one of those comes out of a vault. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. You know, the rest, the rest exists out in, in the world. Um, and as you go through the fluff, the way it's presented, it really makes it clear that just because you're a ghoul doesn't mean that you are a villain or are a monster. You may be a monster, but just because you are a ghoul doesn't mean you're a monster per se. So there are places within the fluff where it basically talks about these different uh, types of characters coexisting to some degree or another. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're a mutant, you're probably just going to be with a bunch of mutants. Um, but, you know, you could probably come up with some kind of background that gets you out of your mutant uh, family and into uh, into the larger world where you've been an outcast because you didn't have a particular mutation or something or another. And then now you're on your own and you just happen to have um, hooked up with three other people that may be other things, but they took you in. And so now you've got a group of four and they may be all the same. They may be different. You're actually, there's some interesting, it it creates some potential for um, inner, inner party conflict, which could be interesting to explore if you're comfortable with it. Um, Because if you had say a brotherhood initiate and you know, anything else, you might have some significant conflict between what that brotherhood initiate wants to do and everybody else, because the brotherhood is, I mean, the brotherhood of steel is very, they have rules, they have regulations. Like you're not going to want to do things that are against your rules and regulations. You're going to want to try and convince your, your fellow compadres to become part of the brotherhood of steel. Like that's what you're going to be doing, which could create some inner, inner conflict in your party, which could be fun so long as everybody is comfortable with where that goes. Um, but that's how they really address it more than anything else. Okay. All right. Very cool. Well, Al, thank you so very much for, for doing this with me. There is, there is a written version of this. This will be posted at the same time as the audio version. I'm hoping to get it out just in the next couple of days. Um, Al took a bunch of pictures of his own personal uh, box set that I'll be including. So you can kind of see some of the bits and bobs that we were talking about uh, as well. So overall, a very good rating. Uh, the book is gorgeous. Just the version I have. I do like the Fallout video game quite a lot. The one that I played as well. Uh, we are probably going to be playing this game together at some point, hopefully in the near-ish future, because there is a sample adventure included in this book, and we're going to be giving that a spin to test that out. Um, is there anything that we just didn't say in the review or just came to mind? If there's one other thing that you think someone might need or want to know to maybe push them over the edge to buy this book or not, can you think of anything? And it's okay if it's no, just giving you the opportunity. Yeah, it's probably no. I, I didn't talk about the included sample adventure, but I will briefly just say that it's pretty badass. All right. 
Very cool. Well, I look forward to getting a chance to play that with you, run it for you, be ran by you, whatever it turns out to be. Um, once again, we want to thank Modiphius for sending. Again, we got an electronic copy of the book for review. Al had already purchased his own set, and then my hard copy went into the Catacon library, but thank them very much for supplying that. Um, there will be links in the show notes here if you want to go purchase a copy. Um, if you do it through their Bethesda or through the Modifia store, which I'll link, we don't get an affiliation. It's just helping point you in the right direction. If you use our Amazon link, then we will get a small percentage of what you buy. Even if you don't buy the Modifia's game, if you just click on our link, you can go buy whatever you want from Amazon. We would appreciate that because we get a small portion of everything that you would uh, buy that way and it helps support the show. Uh, so until next time, just remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.